The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you this is not true. A few years ago, Stephen and I were interviewing an investigative reporter named Thomas Hargrove. His specialty was unsolved murders. As part of his work, he assembled a database of all the open homicide cases in the U.S. Then he looked for patterns. What he found was alarming, a series of so-called unsolved pattern killing, murders that involved similar types of victims with similar methods. But during that interview, he disclosed something profound. In the U.S., there are over 200,000 unsolved murders. It's a staggering number, but one that is rarely discussed. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. This callous coward with a gun in his hand shot a cop in the head tonight. My heart grieves for Detective Sean Souter. It's no way that I would think if you're a good partner that you're going to lose sight of me. Now, if they thought at the smallest level that it involved police officers tied to their case, there's no way they would have given that case back. Listen, after a case gets 72 hours old, it gets cold. If you don't do something in 72 hours, you really have a problem. Well, that Baltimore police detective was just doing his job on behalf of this city. And that's what he's been doing for 18 years. For our first case, we'll explore the unexplained death of Detective Sean Souter. Souter was a 17-year veteran and a homicide detective and father of five, a popular cop who had worked his way up the ranks. But if there was a city that was ill-prepared to deal with the mysterious and violent death of a police officer, it was Baltimore. Unfortunately, that is exactly what occurred on November 15, 2017, when Souter was found shot in the head in a West Baltimore alley. It's a case that embodies all the doubt and distrust of policing and law enforcement in the city. And the subject of our first season of The Land of the Unsolved. Episode 1, Lockdown. We do not know where these shots came from. We have officers in bad locations. Let everybody take cover somewhere, okay? Get away from them windows where you're standing right there by the mouth of that alley because we don't know where those shots came from. Everybody get covered and we figure this out, please. November 15th, 2017. A frantic call goes out over the city's 911 system. Jane Miller is an investigative reporter with WBAL-TV in Baltimore. 
I was in the newsroom. I was doing another story that day. And so this happened. And I remember how odd it was on the scanners that generally when a police officer is shot, it's like lit up and, you know, people screaming and coming from all quarters. And this was this was odd. Our assignment desk, which is, you know, glued to the scanners all the time, they couldn't quite figure out if indeed it was a police officer who had been shot. Indeed, a police officer had been shot. In fact, as news trickled in, Sean Yost, editor of the Afro-American newspaper, was stunned. We were just coming coming out of uh, us putting the paper to bed on Wednesday, and I think I, that's when I heard it first uh, about a detective being killed, a homicide detective being killed. In a crime-ridden section of West Baltimore tonight, yet another murder, but this time it's a cop. I don't think they were saying a lot. I don't know. I don't think people knew what to think initially um, because the news of a homicide detective being killed was such a rare occurrence in our city. Um, I think in any major city. Um, I don't think people knew what to think. Homicide detective Sean Souter, a department veteran, a popular cop, shot in an alley. But from the beginning, Miller notes Souter's death was marked by uncertainty and confusion. For that first couple of hours, that it was very unclear what had happened and who had been shot. So then, of course, we got into a, you know, we were on the air constantly that evening because at that moment, it looked like we had a shooter on the loose, someone who had shot a detective, gravely wounded, um, and and it looked like an active search for a you know, a a cop shooter on the loose. Police Commissioner Kevin Davis held an emotional news conference that evening. Just before 5 o'clock this this evening, a 18-year veteran homicide detective who we are not identifying at this point in time was conducting a follow-up investigation pursuant to one of the homicides that he is assigned to investigate uh, for the Baltimore Police Department. While he was conducting his follow-up investigation, he observed a man... Uh, engaged in suspicious behaviors. Our 18-year homicide veteran approached this man to engage him in conversation. At some point in time thereafter, uh, our 18-year veteran homicide detective was shot in the head. Which is where the first theory of what happened to Souter emerges. Well, the first narrative was that there was a, he encountered someone, had a confrontation with someone, and there was this vague description of an African-American man with a black jacket and white sleeves. Th- there was conflicting information. I got information from a source that said he had knocked on a door of a house. Um, the police department said that's absolutely not correct. And um, it was just the, the, it was a very fluid flow of information. An encounter which occurred in the West Baltimore neighborhood of Harlem Park, an area that suffered from neglect and was prone to violence. I mean, I can describe West Baltimore and Harlem Park is, is you know, um, I think symbolic of a lot of communities in West Baltimore. Um, we've been struggling for a long time. The story was that Souter had confronted someone in an alley and was shot in the head, a tale that didn't quite add up for Miller, particularly when she got her first look at the crime scene and sources started telling her the official tale being touted by the commissioner was fishy. Imagine a box with three sides and one side is, is, and the fourth side's not there. So that's what it's like. It was at one time 
home to a row house, and the row house was torn down. So this is now the vacant, little vacant lot where the row house was. And it isn't at the end of the block. So it has standing houses on either side of it as it faces north. Um, it has a little, it has another, if you can imagine this, it has another vacant house spot that forms like an L to enter it. So you could get to the spot where Sean Souter was found. You could get to that spot two ways, either from the west or from the north. Um, but it the, the idealness of that spot uh, in terms of not being detected, even at 4.30 in the afternoon, is that you ca- there's no camera that looks in there. There's no window, really, for anybody. To- there's no windows. There is a house that has some vantage point on the spot, but I believe it was vacant. And there's no... You- you- somebody would have to be a- in a house across the street at that very second, looking out into that spot to see what happens. So... If you're not going to do something inside a house, this was the next best thing, clearly. But despite the odd location, little evidence of a suspect, and a general community wariness of police, Davis continued to push the theory that Souter was killed by a lone black man from the community. He said a black male wearing a some sort of hooded jacket with a white stripe. That's what I'm wearing right now. I don't have a hood, but I have an Adidas jacket with white stripes. Um... And they, he characterized them as, I mean, demonic or like crazy, evil adjectives. I know that, that our community is just as upset about this as we are. And when people talk about the size of the reward and they talk about the attention that uh, the media is giving this case and, and certainly the Baltimore Police Department is giving this case, that's because one of the pillars of our democracy, American law enforcement, has been attacked. So that's why... America, not just the police department, uh, one, of, one of the pillars of our democracy. When a cop is killed, uh, that, that goes way beyond that, that, that murder. It's an attack on American policing, and American policing uh, exists to support our very unique democracy in this world. So that's why uh, the, the, the murder of a cop always has been and always will be something that's absolutely unacceptable in, in this free society. Yeah, well, we, we suspect, based on some evidence that we've collected, that um, he's still probably uh, in Baltimore. I don't think he jumped on a plane and went to France. He's still probably in, in the community, and there's a very real possibility that, that he's being uh, looked after and treated um, by, by people who are presently unknown to us. A theory of the case, then Police Commissioner Kevin Davis used to make a fateful decision. Then, afterwards, they justified locking down the, an entire community, which was clearly, it seemed clear that it was clearly a violation of everybody's constitutional rights in that community. I mean, it was almost like the past system in South Africa. Well, you couldn't get near the place at first. Um, I was really there, that night I was at Shock Trauma, so now the 16th, I go to the scene, and it was... The, the the actual site of the shooting um, was, I mean, I don't know, six, eight blocks were just completely sealed off with and and what you saw the next day in particular that night and the next day and into the next night was um, tactical officers entering properties. They had a vague blood trail. They were trying to, you know, figure out if that was related 
Um, but they mostly what they were doing was turning up the whole neighborhood. That's what they were doing. They were turning up the whole community. For roughly six days, Davis locked down the Harlem Park community, a controversial move from a police department already under federal consent decree for racist and unconstitutional policing. If you didn't live in the community, you really couldn't come in the community at all. It was pretty much like, uh, it, it felt like it was a curfew. I mean, it was bullshit. She knew it. Everybody knew it. And people were scared. I knocked on the door of a guy whose house I'd been raided, had been raided. And he was, he was truly frightened and begged me to get away. I didn't have a camera. Begged me to get away from his door. What did he say? I said to him, look, I was actually talking to him through the door knob, where the door knob was but had been removed when they went in the house. So <laughs> I'm looking through this little hole, and I can see him, and I can see another woman in the house. And I said, look, I just want to talk to you about you know, why you got targeted, et cetera. He's like, please, we didn't do anything. Please, please get out of the way, get away from the house. This is not a good time. We're, we're really scared. And did you, could you see the fear in his face? Yeah, I could hear, I couldn't see his face, but I could hear it in his voice. I could hear it in his voice, the, the fear. And there, that was true uh, throughout that community is that people were, you know, getting raided and, and all, all kinds of things were, you know, happening in, to the community with, with the constant presence of police and the checkpoints getting in and out of the community, that kind of thing. So, so the, way, the way the case was framed from the beginning, the inability to develop any kind of suspect is, it, you know, there's a, there's a very strong suspicion in, you know, in the community that this was a very targeted um, hit. Before we get to the next part of the story, I think it's important to provide some context to our listeners. The Baltimore City Police Department has a troubled relationship with the community, to say the least. There was the death of Freddie Gray in 2015 while in police custody, which prompted the uprising. And then a damning 2016 Justice Department report, which exposed a history of unconstitutional policing targeted at black communities. Today, the Department of Justice announces the outcome of our investigation and issues a 163-page report detailing our findings. We conclude that there is reasonable cause to believe that BPD engages in a pattern or practice of conduct that violates the Constitution and federal anti-discrimination law. BPD engages in a pattern or practice of making unconstitutional stops, searches, and arrests, using enforcement strategies that produce severe and unjustified disparities in the rates of stops, searches, and arrests of African Americans, using excessive force, and retaliating against people engaging in constitutionally protected expression. And then this. The seven defendants were members of the Gun Trace Task Force of the Baltimore City Police Department, and during the course of their membership in that task force, they conspired to engage in a racketeering conspiracy. The crimes included robbery of victims, overtime fraud, filing of false police reports, and a variety of other illegal activities. That was then Maryland U.S. Attorney Rod Rosenstein announcing the indictments of the now notorious Gun Trace Task Force. At the time, seven officers accused of drug dealing, racketeering, robbing residents, and stealing overtime. 
It was one of the worst scandals in the history of Baltimore police. For years, officers stole drugs, robbed innocent residents, and were paid overtime while on vacation, all under the noses of their supervisors. It put a city already accustomed to a strained relationship with police on edge, which only made the death of Souter and Davis's assertion a lone gunman from the neighborhood had shot him more frightening. I keep going back to the fact that the Department of Justice was in the city while the Gun Trace Task Force was operating at full force. <laughs> the audacity of the, of, 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 of the, not just the Gun Trace Task Force, but I think it's, it, it, was, it was indicative of the culture that had permeated, you know, the Baltimore Police Department. Um, so, uh, yeah, it is ironic, I guess, that, um, you know, the Baltimore Police Department, while under consent decree, um, implemented basically martial law in a, in a community in West Baltimore. Still, Davis continued to justify the lockdown and insists Souter was a victim of a criminal from the neighborhood. The reason why we are continuing to hold the crime scene, and we are probably going to hold that crime scene throughout the weekend, so I'm saying that right now, is because we're getting tips in, information in, that is leading us to conduct searches uh, in that immediate vicinity. And once we release a crime scene, we can't get it back. Can't get it back. So I I do understand the temporary inconvenience for residents. I've personally interacted with residents um, in Harlem Park myself and to a person. Each and every one of them understands why we're out there and why we're doing what we need to do. But as Miller began to uncover details about the case, Davis's allegations didn't add up. I was starting to hear this rumbling from sources, police sources, that he was shot with his own gun. And I didn't confirm it until the next day. And Miller was not alone. Stephen Tabling, a former homicide detective who in the 1970s was in charge of investigating police shootings, said he too had doubts. And I've investigated a lot of cases in my career. And, and uh, to see a case like this where you can't find his partner, there's a struggle, a gun goes against a person's head. The whole thing is if somebody's trying to take my gun and they get my gun, I'm fighting for my life. It's going to be very difficult for that guy to put that gun up against my head. The first aspect of the case that bothered Tabling was Davis's insistence on offering theories of the case while the investigation was ongoing. You, you never talk. You never talk about a case and, until it's over, until you have all the facts together. And uh, uh, I've, you know, when I was in homicide squad, some uh, newspaper people got mad at me because I wouldn't give any information until I had it all. I mean, you can make too many mistakes. For tabling, the commissioner's behavior was hard to explain. Well, you know, I, I, I work with 12 police commissioners. And it's only been recently that a couple of police commissioners got involved, like I see now, and it bothers me. And the other thing that bothers me is the homicide squad is micromanaged. You cannot go on a crime scene and do your case properly with majors and colonels looking over your shoulder. Meanwhile, Miller learned about a key piece of evidence police had been withholding, a clue that would challenge everything the police had been saying. I had, within the first 24 hours, I had very strong indication he was shot with his own gun. And we reported it within 36 hours. And so when you have that scenario, now you start to think, 
Wow, who's able to do that? And leave the gun there. And when Miller confirmed that Souter was in fact shot with his own gun, it changed everything. Nothing about it. I mean, they confirmed it, but that's all they said. But they stuck with their narrative of this was someone that was able to get his gun from him and shoot him in the head. A fact that only confirmed suspicions for Yost that the case was not what it appeared to be, particularly since a $215,000 reward offered by police and the FBI had gone uncollected. This random, mysterious uh, brother busts a cap in, on, in the head of a homicide detective, and they put a $215,000 bounty on his head. His mom is going to turn him in. There's no, there's no way. There's no way. And in any other, just about every murder case that, I, that, that I've ever heard of or covered, um, where, the, where the, 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 the killer is found, Usually it takes 48 hours, 72 hours. He's hiding somewhere in the same community. He might be at his mama's house. He might be at his girl's house. That's typically a narrative that I've seen play out a lot of different times. I, I just, it just doesn't make any sense that this, this black male vanished into thin air, especially when you think about the magnitude, the scope of the lockdown of the community. How do you escape? How do you get out of there? For Tabling, the revelation of Souter being shot with his own gun raised a series of questions that led to mounting skepticism on his part. First of all, if, um, if somebody takes a gun from a policeman, which is very difficult now, I understand that they have different kind of holsters than we used to have. And it also seems you know, difficult to me for a person to be wrestling with a policeman, take his gun away from him shoot him in the head and his gun remains on the scene and the person runs away now if you know if i'm wrestling with a policeman he's going to be fighting me i'm sure yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna have his gun but i'm gonna be running may i might i take a shot sure i might take a shot as i'm running away but if i'm struggling with a policeman it just doesn't seem right to me that I can get that contact, if I, what I hear is right, if I can get that contact wound to his head. That just doesn't seem right to me. And then an autopsy and new evidence, a bullet. My colleague Dave Collins was working and was happened to be there photographing and rolling camera when they had this kind of big aha moment, if you remember that. Aha, we found the bullet. Even though they had gone through that area, like, you know, the fine-tooth comb for days... Now here we are five days later, six days later, and it's like, oh, look, there's the bullet. Evidence the commissioner believed would lead to a suspect, but was in fact another dead end. Then the police department, that sometime that week, I, I think probably around the time we were reporting about the autopsy, is that they confirmed that there was no evidence, physical evidence of another person. Meaning the only DNA, the only fingerprints on the gun were suitors. But even as doubts were beginning to surface about the case, and reporters like Miller were uncovering evidence that pointed elsewhere, city officials held a full hero's funeral for Souter. Sean was the kind of son, husband, father, police officer, and friend that everyone here strives to be. Detective Sean Souter lived and died a hero, and that he will never be forgotten. He was a good person. That smile radiated before he opened the door. That laughter came through right as soon as he began to talk. Sean was all right with us. 
right off the jump. The hero's send-off transfixed the city, the department doubling down on the theory of a lone gunman, even as doubts grow within the community. I got I, like I said, uh, um, it, it, 48 to 72 hours, I think that it, it, it seemed clear something was really foul about um, his death. And among other cops. If somebody, if somebody takes my gun, I'm fighting for my life. I'm going to kick them, bite them. I'm going to do everything that I can. And they're going to be doing the same thing to me. But just when the case couldn't get weirder, the police commissioner drops a bombshell that not only confirms suspicions within the community, but sets the case on a collision course with the city's dark history of police corruption. I am now aware of Detective Souter's pending federal grand jury testimony surrounding an incident that occurred several years ago with BPD police officers who were federally indicted in March of this year. All that coming up on the next episode of The Land of the Unsolved, the mysterious death of Detective Sean Souter. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of The Land of the Unsolved. Be sure to join us for the next episode of The Land of the Unsolved, where we will delve deeper into the mysterious death of Baltimore homicide detective Sean Souter. We want to thank our guests, award-winning investigative reporter for WBAL-TV, Jane Miller. We also want to thank Sean Yost, Baltimore editor of the Afro newspaper, the nation's oldest black newspaper, and former homicide detective Stephen Tabling. Remember to visit the website for our sponsor, America's number one crime mapping company. Go to spotcrime.com, type in your address, and the Spot Crime Mapping Service will give you the latest info regarding crime in your neighborhood, or anywhere else for that matter. The best part, it's free. So be sure to check out spotcrime.com, because safety begins with knowing. The Land of the Unsolved was written and produced by Stephen Janis and Taya Graham for Ace Spectrum Productions. If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works. My name is Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. And thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved.